Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome to an early holiday edition podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We have a dual local special guest today, both Brett and Brew. Welcome to the show. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, happy, to, happy to be here. Well, great. Look, Brett and Brew, for those who aren't familiar, are a couple guys that started a local startup called Peer Street. And that's P-E-E-R, which I, I thought had a little bit of a double meaning because their office is located on the Manhattan Beach Pier, right down the road from where I live and where we work in El Segundo. And I met these guys about, what, four or five months ago over a handful of beers at a local spot. If you've ever been to Manhattan Beach, Simsy's is a wonderful spot to get beers. Quickly became friends and very interesting in their business model. So why don't we start out, guys? I imagine most of our audience isn't that familiar with uh, your company. But before we start the the Pier Street discussion and kind of your business model and investment ideas, why don't we start a little bit with kind of your origin story of how y'all two met and and maybe just kind of a quick overview of the, you know, the companies you guys had started and sold into and leading up uh, into into starting Pier Street. Uh, Sure, sure. Uh, This is Brew. So just this high level. So Pier Street uh, is a marketplace for investing in real estate loans, real estate backed debt. Um, and the idea here is that real estate debt is a fantastic asset class that has been that everybody really has exposure to in one way or the another, either through deposits at a bank or through retirement things like retirement accounts and mutual funds and bond funds. The way that most people have exposure to it is 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 not ideal, and that there's a lot of intermediaries, a lot of kind of the yield gets stripped off before people invest in it. So the idea behind Peer Street is really to create a marketplace that allows investors to invest more directly into real estate loans uh, with more transparency and more control. Um, and so you got this great asset class that everybody has exposure to. There's been really never a way to access it before. So we're creating a a way to access it that's for investors. It's similar to buying stock through E-Trade or CharlesSchwab.com. So that's really the kind of high-level overview of uh, of, uh, of Pier Street. And obviously, real estate debt, if you think of mortgages, is just a massive, massive market. Um, so our whole our whole idea is we're serving the very niche part of the whole real estate lending world, which are short-term, high-interest rate, you know, would have historically been referred to as hard money loans or private money loans. So our idea, is, our idea here is, well, there's this great asset class that's always existed out there that is high-yielding, short-term loans. Uh, but it's incredibly fragmented and historically has been almost impossible for any investor to access. So we've created this technology platform that allows us to aggregate up these, uh, these loans, curate them to surface the highest quality assets, and to homogenize them to make it very easy for investors to invest in. So that's the idea. So short term, our goal is basically let's provide a great asset class for investors um, that is basically, you know, in this kind of in this era we live in where people are just starved for yield. Um, we think we're just providing 
access to what, what we believe has some of the mis, most mispriced risk of almost any asset uh, for the first time to investors. So our first kind of like stage is let, let's provide access to this great asset class. And I want, we have long-term aspirations of disrupting the entire mortgage finance and securitization markets, but that's uh, for a little later of the day. Um, yeah. And Brew and I, to your question, we've known each other for, gosh, going on what, 20 some odd years yeah, now? 20, 20, going on 25. I thought 15. <laughs> we've known each other since college, let's put it that way, and uh, have been friends ever since. We were very good friends in college and stayed in touch uh, over the years, and we kind of had our different career paths and kind of very different backgrounds and origin stories. And then we came together to build this business that's Peer Street. Briefly, and I know, Brett, you came from a software background. Eventually, was at the Googleplex for a while. Brew, what was your prior to starting Peer Street? Like, what, what was the origin? What was the aha moment? How'd you, how'd you guys link up? Was it, was it a Silicon Beach matchmaking event? What, what was the, how'd you guys eventually <laughs> decide to start this and, and move forward? Yeah. Match.com, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, great question. It's weird. This is like, this is one of those aha moment kind of things that it kind of uh, took shape over many, many years. So, I mean, me going back, I, I was, I started my career as a real estate attorney. So, you know, graduated law school, UCLA in 2001. I was actually planning on doing tech work when I got out of law school, but the dot com boom had blown up. The firm I was going to, which was one of the number two kind of top 25 international law firm, did a huge amount of tech work and IPOs, basically laid off all the incoming associates before a lot of them even got, got in the door. And they asked me, they said, where do you want to go? In the labor department or the real estate department? I said, oh, I guess real estate was kind of one of these, these just kind of like, it sounds better to me than labor law. And uh, <laughs> then I applied to the real estate law from 2001 to early 2006. So it was just, you know, obviously at the heart of the, of the real estate boom, the housing bubble, everything that was driving that. So I kind of, kind of, in my career, I kind of came out of this like dot com blow up, and then went into this other blow bubble that was starting to blow. I, the firm I, I ended up then getting poached to go over to the top real estate firm on the West Coast. But the firm I, I worked at I just got this great exposure to real estate work. You know, represent everything from national home builders to banks to the largest industrial REIT in the world, the largest office REIT in the world, and all these different, all types of real estate clients and. I mean, stuff that was just happening in the market just did not make sense to me at all, like intuitively. And, you know, I'd go, I'd go out to our client's project and, the, you know, I'd qualify to get a, to buy a house that I thought was double or triple what I should be able to qualify for. And uh, I just I just had to understand what was going on, and I kind of became obsessed with what was driving everything. You know, it drove me to monetary policy, Federal Reserve, the securitization market, everything. Well, that's actually kind of how I discovered one of our, our mutual friend, Barry Ritholtz, is actually by reading the big picture blog back in the day. Guys like Ritholtz and uh, Mike Shedlock or Mish and his global economic analysis site and a bunch of different guys were, you know, uncovering all these facts about what was going on in the market, which is obvious very early on, you know, that it was a house of cards. So I ended up, you know, early on sort of shorted, shorted Fannie Mae and the banks and you know, made my fiance sell her condo in 2004, which was about nine months too early, but it was better than selling it nine months too late, I guess. You know, it's basically was planning on doing a vulture fund when, uh, when the, when the world ended, which I was 100% convinced that it would be. Partners in my office, our clients would call me Bubble Boy because I'll, you know, I'd be talking about, hey, the end is coming and nobody would believe me. 
The so, best guy ever at a cocktail party. Oh, yeah, I was, I was the worst. It was weird. <laughs> Everybody was, like, so, like, high on life, and everything's great, where we can all buy houses and get rich, and I was just, like, this negative Nancy all the time. I was not a very uh, fun guy to have at cocktail parties. Uh, anyways, so I spent on doing a vulture fund. I ended up leaving the real estate law uh, end of 2005, early 2006, and I was going to wait for things to blow up and, and start investing when things were on the downside. And my brother had a tech company that I'd actually helped him found when I was in law school that was growing. He'd been through the bust and, you know, the dot-com and was growing this business. He needed help. So I went to work for him while I waited for the real estate thing to unfold. Now, so I was his director of business development and general counsel. I ended up basically convincing him to sell the company because I was, again, I, I was very confident that the, the crisis was going to happen. Uh, so we ended up selling that company to Expedia and, and closed that sale in July of 2008. So right before Lehman happened. And we literally like, obviously, if you were paying attention back then, it just, things had started melting down a lot earlier. And people say, oh, Lehman is the thing that melted it down. But obviously, it happened a lot earlier. So we were running to hit the exit. We did. Had a great exit for my brother and his co-founders and the employees there. Sold a great company. Uh, TripAdvisor actually was wholly owned by Expedia at the time, was what actually acquired us. Um, I spent a couple of years at TripAdvisor incorporating our, our platform into, into, into their business. You know, so I had this weird real estate background. Then I got in the tech world. As we sold the company, and I was still very convinced that a lot of banks were going to go out of business, I thought, wow, like after having day-to-day experience at a tech company, I thought, it, when banks go out of business, we'll need some way to fill the void here. And you prosper and lending club had started up in the peer-to-peer lending space. And I thought, wow, this would be a really interesting thing to apply to real estate. Long story short, it worked out a similar business model to this back then, but um, timing wasn't right for a lot of reasons. Regulatory was too burdensome. Technology wasn't quite there. It just wasn't the right time. Uh, so fast forward several years uh, to 2013. Uh, in the interim, I'd made a, you know, bought a bunch of foreclosures during the crisis, bought, distra- bought notes from banks that were, you know, during the crisis, made hard money loans myself. Uh, but 2013, kind of the stars had aligned perfectly for this business, and that's when I that's when I reached out to Brett. So Brett, you got a pretty interesting background too. I I know you start helped work, joined your brother in a company, uh, then eventually got sold prior to joining Pier Street. Could you talk about that just real quick and kind of how that uh, ended up working, m- moving into Pier Street? So my background uh, coming out of college, uh, I co-founded a business called Urchin Software Corporation. We basically uh, help create the web analytics space. And web analytics basically tell you how people got to your website, what they did on your website, and whether people converted on your goal of buying something or whatever it is. And, you know, we built that company out in 2005. We got acquired by Google, and then we turned Urchin into Google Analytics. We basically rebranded it, put it on Google software or, or um, internal systems, and then we uh, gave it away for free, which is a great growth strategy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and then I stayed on at Google for about 10 years doing a number of things, from uh, helping launch the mobile ads product to helping uh, launch the entire social initiatives at Google, uh, and then I launched uh, Google Drive, and then ran growth and global consumer marketing for Chrome, Gmail, Docs, and Drive, uh, and the various teams involved in those. Uh, also ran uh, there's kind of a random side note, but a bunch of the celebrity and influencer programs at Google and uh, centralized that when I was there, which is kind of an interesting thing. But at the time, um, when I was running Chrome, Gmail, Docs, and, and Drive growth, which we were having phenomenal growth uh, across all of those products, um, Brew reached out to me, and he and I had been college buddies, uh, as, as I said, known each other for a long time. And so, um, and 
kind of ran this idea by me and I was like, wow, this is a really, really interesting idea. I love it. And mainly because like two things. One, it was like really outside of kind of the normal tech world. It was going after a space that really hadn't been touched by technology. And the vision for it was to do it in a way that was not just kind of focused on fixing kind of one small problem, like the symptom and like, and solving for one of the symptoms, it was really going after the cure for the entire systemic problem. And it was, you know, really, if you take this idea that it's a very grand idea that we're trying to do with Pure Street, we're just starting in a very specific spot. And the more I dug into that, the more Brew um, and I talked about it, the more I just realized this was uh, one of those really once in a lifetime opportunities to do something um, really big that really matters to really every man, woman, child in the country, right? I mean, real estate, I mean, it's important. It's, there's, there's housing and stuff like, you know, uh, and real estate finance is a huge part of that. Um, so if we could fix some of these problems with one of the most important industries in the world that if done right, can have fantastic consequences. If done wrong, has these horrible consequences like bringing the global economy to its knees. Yeah, so that's that's how I got involved in this and, and uh, joined Brew as a co-founder. And then we then we take all these all these lessons from learn from Google and apply it to the space like ecosystem play. How we go after uh, lenders rather than borrowers, and you know now we have 50 lenders in the program. We're working in half the country now. And then uh, the the data and analytics directly, like my background in analytics, as Bru pointed out. So, and uh, interestingly enough, when we were starting this, I put on the top list of my advisors, being a guy who was like short the market, you know, early on, and then uh, top list of advisors, I put Michael Burry as our number one guy that we wanted wanted to get as an advisor. And Brett Brett originally invested as an angel investor before he left Google to come on as my co-founder. But I was showing Brett my list of like hopeful advisors. He's like, oh, Michael Burry, I think I'm a co-investor in a business with this guy. So Brett happened to be a co-investor with Burry in another business and got that introduction to him. And that's uh, bringing him on was kind of like a, he was kind of like an idol of mine. But bringing him on was uh, was was pretty awesome. And uh, he's, he's obviously a very smart and cynical guy. So getting him, he, he, getting him bought in on this. Which uh, we kind of saw, saw really eye to eye on a lot of different things. Uh, it was pretty exciting. Yeah, he, he and Brew were like long lost brothers in a lot of ways. They saw the world <laughs> in the same way. Both po- po- podcast listeners uh, may not be familiar, but he's uh, was heavily for, uh, featured in the recent movie The Big Short as one of the ones that was early on to the subprime trade. Correct? Yeah, yeah he was played by Christian Bale, and he's a big he's a big kind of star of the book too, which is a phenomenal read if you haven't read it. Yeah, he's pretty much the first guy to identify it all and then figure it out. And uh, there's other, three other guys that are in that book and movie that are also investors, but they have asked us to keep it uh, on the down low. But for us, like, like you know, our long-term goal, we think, with a platform like this can literally transform mortgage finance for the better for everybody. So having these guys that were, like, the smartest guys in the room that identified all the issues on the downside, all the problems, kind of be involved in helping to kind of do something long-term that creates these potential fixes levels problems is really exciting for us and humbling for us too. Yeah. And then once, uh, I mean, Burry came on board even before I left Google, which is pretty cool. And then, so, um, but once we had the ball rolling, um, then I was like, this is it. Like, I, so I specifically left Google to do this business with brew, moved my family down to Manhattan beach, you know, tortured to be here around all these sunsets and, uh, great people and, you know, uh, bathing suits and whatnot and good surf. So, Although, to be honest, we're not, we don't surf as much as we used to. What happened there, bro? A little too busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway, it's been great. 
anyway. it's interesting. And so um, the company was started, and then when did y'all make the first loan? Is it about a year ago? Uh, our first loan we did was actually in October of 2014. Okay. It was a $100,000 loan on a property in Oakland, California, on Thermal Street. We remember it very well. So take a step back. And, you know, I've watched y'all's cartoon video, which is which is particularly helpful in explaining this process. We'll post it to the show notes. But for the listeners out there currently walking their dog or on the subway in New York, give us a very basic overview of how the process works. You know, an investor comes to your website. How How is the basic, you know, two, five-minute overview on a simplistic level of this process? And then we'll get into some more of the details uh, a little bit later. Sure, sure. And um, I, I rambled on so long, we, I, we didn't get into Brett's, Brett's background and stuff, but that's an important piece. We might should talk on that later because it's an important piece of the puzzle of how we structure things. But um, yeah, so just use case first of all. So there's always been this kind of shadow or niche lending market that's always existed, uh, this kind of non-bank hard money lending market. And so that's our focus. And so here, here's the typical use case for our loans that come through, and I, I think that's important for people to understand. The typical use case is a real estate investor, entrepreneur, who finds a, 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 a good value property that they can buy at, a, at basically a discount to the market, and then they can either fix it up to sell out or rent out as an investment property. That's, that's effectively the, the kind of main use case for the borrower in this asset class. Now, when they have a good deal, they need to move extremely quick. They don't have time to go to a bank and go through the 60, 90 day process of potentially getting a loan and then probably at the end of that process not getting a loan. So instead of going to a bank to go buy this property to fix up and sell, those borrowers would historically go to a local lender, which was a, another non-bank, another kind of real estate expert in, in their in their town, and get a short-term loan to buy the property and fix it up. It's a very localized business when you're dealing with the kind of these local real estate investors and entrepreneurs you know, these fix and flip guys, and the lenders that operate this are also very local, localized. And so literally there's thousands of these borrowers and also lenders scattered around the country that make loans in their hometowns, their geographic areas that they kind of have expertise in. And these lenders that make these type of loans, um, because they lend in areas they know very well and to borrowers they know very, very well in many cases, they can make underwriting decisions very quickly. So you have a borrower who needs money fast. You also have these lenders who need money very fast or can make can make loans very quickly if this perfect match made in heaven. So borrower will go, lender will make a short-term loan, typically six to 12 months at anywhere from 10 to 15% interest rate, sometimes even higher. And uh, everybody's happy because the borrower gets the money he needs to do his deal. He has a profit in it. The lender gets a nice return for the time his money's outstanding. It's great. Who's setting the interest rate? Is it the the lenders? The lenders typically historically have set the interest rate. Okay, and it's you know generally markets. This is one thing for borrowers. Historically, there's only you know you have these things where there's kind of word of mouth of who would make these loans, and most borrowers. I mean, if you're going back five, ten, thirty years, most borrowers only had one or two options to go to. So a lot of times they just pay incredibly high interest rates because it was the only game in town, really. But at the end of the day, when these loans are underwritten well, they're incredibly low risk if they're underwritten and structured correctly. And to give you an example, my best friend's dad growing up would make these loans all the time. He was a local real estate guy that owned a bunch of rental properties. So when somebody came to him, he knew the properties very well. He knew he'd like what price he'd be happy to own it at. So he'd make these loans. And in 30 years, he never took a loss on on a property making these loans. So when I was growing up, I always saw that as an example. So it was this kind of the asset there that we're trying to open up is these great assets 
very, very lucrative, mispriced risk when done correctly, but incredibly fragmented. So almost impossible for anybody to invest in. And if anybody could access it to invest in, it historically has to make a very concentrated bet in one loan, do a lot of work. Um, so it's kind of really, it's just this niche market that always existed out there. So with our whole concept of this is like, well, you've got all these expert lenders out there that lend capital to borrowers and provide a service. But for the lenders, it's very capital intensive because they're not a bank. They don't have deposits to take to go lend off of and lever up off of. So it's almost this perfect storm to create a marketplace like this that we're doing. So our whole model is let's go create a technology platform that these lenders can participate in. We provide them technology. They go out and make loans in the ordinary course of their business. And then we connect those loans to investors who want to, who want yield effectively. It's a high level way to look at it. So for lenders that operate in this space, they have access to liquidity so they can make more loans to more qualified borrowers. And then for investors, there's a huge benefit to investors because they get access to this great yielding asset class that they've never been able to access before. But in addition to being able to access the asset class, they can access it in a better way. And so the better way they can access it access it in is they can get diversification across a lot of loans because we've created a legal structure that allows investors to take fractional interest in many loans. So the idea is investors can not only access this asset class, but they can spread their risk and diversify and mitigate their risk by diversifying across in a way that's never existed before. So we look at a platform like this as, you know, in one way to look at it is taking the benefits the benefits of the securitization market and the regular market industry and applying it to a more lucrative asset class, but also removing a lot of the negatives. There's no, there's less middlemen, there's more transparency, there's just a lot of positives to it. So so, so let's talk a little bit of um, just some general metrics that may help investors. What, what's the sort of range on yields you guys have on your platform right now? And, and as an extension, like how many active current deals are there? How many... Uh, loans historically have you done? What, what, give, give us a few kind of just top top down metrics that help illustrate what the broad picture looks like. Sure, and just to, just to kind of level set, you know, the, we are in a private kind of uh, beta basically for the first year. Uh, we opened up the platform at the end of October in 2015, so we've really been operating kind of broadly for about a year. But you know, metric wise, uh, we've done about 200 million of loans through the platform, high, high percentage of those, uh, most of those in, the, in, in 2016. Uh, stats, if you're looking at from an investor's point of view, is um, average net yield to investors of 8.5% across the entire platform. That's net of fees and expenses. Average duration of the loans that have come through has been 10 months. Uh, and the average loan to value, which in real estate lending or real estate debt is the number one risk parameter, meaning the you know the ratio of the loan balance versus the property value. Um, the average the average loan to value has been 65%. So the idea here of being able to invest across loans of this of this with these kind of statistics get eight and a half percent net yield on a 10 month term on a 65% average loan to value. It's just and these yeah. are these are first position liens against real estate, right? So it's uh, against the underlying asset of real estate. So um, even if something uh, were to go wrong, you've got the real estate that you know you can work out alone, and so you've got you've got that going. Versus like you know, Bruce throughout those statistics, if you look at them against other asset classes, like for example, uh, like Lending Club, it's higher you know, Pure Street is higher yield, shorter term, and uh, backed by the underlying real estate. So 
uh, if something does go wrong, you actually the odds of principal loss uh, are much much lower because you've got an actual asset there. And and so kind of thinking about the risk mitigation, you know, t- talk a little bit about like who's vetting the deal. So I, I think my understanding is that y'all. The, the deal originator also, you know, has a fair amount of skin in the game by vetting it. But as do you guys vet each deal too? What, what's kind of the general process on on picking out um, a good loan to at least present on your platform? Uh, great question. And so Brett always likes to talk about how, like, you know, this asset class is so localized. Like, to try, to, you want to get a nationwide platform so investors can get as much broad diversification as possible. But this is such an idiosyncratic asset because it's so localized that you really need boots on the ground to be able to scale nationally. So the way we've structured this is the idea of like, it's almost like the combination of, of using science to inform the art almost, you know, the combination of this. And so the art is these local lenders out there uh, and the science is what we lay on top of it. So we look at it as the best of both worlds. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the lenders are the first level. They go, they go find borrowers, they underwrite the loans, they commit their capital, to make the loans, which is an important piece. These lenders have to like the loan enough to make their cap, to commit their capital to it. So they're kind of the first level of underwriting. Then, um, and if you stop right there, by the way, that's the way their business always worked. That's basically how it's always been. They make the loan, they, you know, they do all their underwriting, they decide if they're gonna do it, and then they, they make the loan. And then we act as a secondary market for them, and then this is what's kind of new about Pier Street and interesting about this asset, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. So. Um, you know, they make the loan, then they bring the loan to Pier Street. And what I, I guess I should qualify first by before we even allow lenders to to participate in the platform, they have to apply to the marketplace, and we run them through a, a, a vetting process where we go through their backgrounds, their track records, and their credit quality to get comfortable with them as as an underwriter and originator of loans. So, first step is we vet these guys uh, thoroughly. But then when they make their loans, they bring them to us, and then Pure Street does a, a second layer of underwriting. So the underwriting includes you know, data analytics, where we're analyzing what's going on in the submarket where the properties are located on. Um, you know, very, I mean, Brett's, Brett was the founder of Google Analytics, background in analytics. So the idea of us kind of using data science as like a high-level overlay to kind of verify what's happening in the submarkets is important. Because uh, our opinion is, you know, historically people have gotten – uh, in trouble in this asset class when a they make too risky of loans, um, so you want to be conservative. But also when there's inflection points in the market, then people don't identify those. So our, our you know, first step is we look at the the submarket where the loans are located and say, what's a what's what's it look like here? And we run a bunch of algorithms against all with a bunch of data and points to look at things and try to figure out you know what we think the forecast is there. We also stress test the loans using historical data for the zip code or census track where the property is located in. They say, hey, what was the worst case scenario for this loan? And let me interrupt you there for a second because being a historical quant, you know that that argument obviously is very interesting to me because I'm sure the first question you guys always get will be, "This is great. The last few years, what what would have happened in a 2007, 2008, 2009, you know, real estate?" Armageddon. So is this something you guys have been able to simulate at all or been able to look back historically and, and kind of what's, what's your answer to that question? Because I'm, I'm sure that's almost every investor's first, first fear. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, a, that's a great question. Well, well, there's a couple things. I mean, first, I mean, there's so many things about real estate that make it idiosyncratic that you'll never have like a pure apples to apples comparison, right? Because properties are different. What happens? So 
But the idea is like, let's use as much data as possible to make the most, the best informed decision, or at least to add that other layer of comfort, right? So, I mean, the one things we can look at is like, okay, uh, what's the, what's the, I mean, look at these, and these are 10 month, sh very short term loans. So when you're in this very short term asset, it's, I think, you know, for you to lose money on one of these deals, a couple things have to happen. One, the borrower has to stop making payments, right? And then the value of the property has to decrease by, on average, 35%, because our average loan to value is 65%. So that's kind of your, like, bogey in terms of, like, all right, on a loan-by-loan -loan basis, that's what has to happen, okay? And that can happen on a loan-by-loan -loan basis, right? So our whole thing is, like, all right, if, the, if it's a rising real estate market or the market where that property is located in is healthy and trending up, well, that's a big risk mitigant because if, if we've done our work right in terms of valuing the property correctly or establishing a reasonable valuation on that property and the market is trending up, well, that's a huge risk mitigant, right? So the data we look at there is a huge amount of inputs on, you know, uh, sales prices, velocity of sales, REO saturation, the days on market of REOs versus, you know, REOs or foreclosures, basically, um, versus regular sales. We look at macro data and crime statistics and job growth and affordability. So we look at all these things and basically say, okay, what's the current, like, what's the snapshot of the health of the submarket? Because if it's trending up and looks very healthy, well, that's a big risk in itself. Second step we look at is, and then we also run these, these algorithms that basically simulate, run up, you know, these calculations that simulate all those inputs and then compare it to previous cycles and say like, all right, in other markets and other areas, what happened when, when affordability ticked up and school, school, you know, building permits went down, you know, all the data that goes, looks out, we try to create this forecast. Now, a forecast is that it's a forecast. Uh, we think it's useful, but, you know, we think our simulations are good, but you never know until it goes through. But it does give you this idea of, like, if there's red flags coming up, our forecast will indicate that things are slowing down, or that there could be one of these inflection points. So that's just the first level. So there's a lot that goes into that, obviously. And then the next one is like, hey, look, what was the worst price decline in this submarket? And so, you know, a lot of times in a lot of markets, we're over the previous peak of the previous cycle, right? Um, but if I'm looking at a 70% LT. LTV loan, and the worst price decline in that submarket was 15%, and the data of the submarket is showing that it looks pretty healthy right now, well, from a starting point, that feels, that feels pretty good, right? Now, on a flip side, if you were in a market like Stockton, California, where on, if you get really granular on areas, you know, prices might have been down 60% in a certain zip code or census area, and your data is showing that not only is the market slowing, we're forecasting it to go down by 5%. All right, well, red flags are going up on all, all over the place, right? So that's just kind of the first layer, and that's kind of like the, that's the, the data analytics that, you know, we use right now, and that will just continue to get better and better the more we grow because we just have more data inputs, right? But then the second step, which is also important, is like, well, every loan and real estate and property is a little different. So we actually, then we actually go through a manual underwrite of, of the loan, like you would if you were doing a loan. So through a loan fire, you make sure all the legal's in place, insurance is in place, there's a deed recorded so you can go foreclose if the borrower stops paying. And then the last step is that it is important in terms of the underwriting, we send somebody out to the property, a third party, independent appraiser, appraiser, value, somebody to value the property, to get eyes on the property and say, hey, we think this property is worth X. And that's an important thing because so all of these things kind of go in and it establishes the the idea of like, okay, with all these things kind of pointing up and looking good, we feel pretty good about that. And then 
it's got to meet our underwriting guidelines, which we think are pretty conservative. And we think we can be conservative because we cast this wide net of getting loans from all these lenders around the country. So those are kind of the, just the overall big picture steps. Lender, the originator makes the loan. They commit their capital to make that loan. They bring it to Pier Street. We, we run the data analytics. We, we stress test the loan. Then we do a manual underwrite. We send somebody out the property to do evaluation. And then it's got to, if it, if it meets our underwriting guidelines, then we make it available to investors. I'm just trying to think from a portfolio manager perspective or an investor who's looking at this and saying, all right, seven, eight, nine percent returns. That's pretty awesome in a world of two percent treasuries, you know, stock returns probably pretty low. But I'm trying to think of like worst case scenario, oh eight, oh nine. Do you guys mentally simulate in any sort of way what you know, the worst case scenario would be, be on this basket of loans. I know you guys have a very high track record so far of not having any foreclosures, very little yet. But like an 08 environment, is that something people could expect if they had a diversified portfolio, maybe losing 10% of their principal in a year? Or, or is it something that you could even foresee higher, lower? Is it hard to say? Like just kind of ballpark 10,000 foot view do you have any thoughts on that, or is that just a little too... First, first on a loan-by-loan loan basis. Every time we look at any loan, we're basically running that historical data on that loan in that submarket, right? So that's step one to your question. And so we, and we post that. We we tell you, um, you know, when we what the metrics look like on each loan. So each loan has a detail page. Every investment has a de- detail page. So you can see what the forecast look like, what the worst-case scenario would look like. And in different areas... You know, 08 was the worst case scenario across a lot of the country, but other places have had worst case scenarios than 08, like, you know, dot-com bus in San Francisco uh, in some areas might have been worse than 08, et cetera. And like, uh, you know, areas of Texas around oil bus and things like that, uh, et cetera. So looking at it granularly is very important on a loan-by-loan basis. But if you look portfolio-wide, I know there's all passed over Bruce, and I don't want to talk about this one. But yeah, that's uh, then we look across our entire portfolio about what would happen. Yeah, but on a on a loan by loan basis, like you know, we recommend everybody diversification is important, right? That's that's a huge thing. We try to push diversification as much as possible. Some people though might find a loan that they really like and kind of put more money into a particular loan, but even in a good market, there could be something that happens with a property that actually you know you could lose money on, right? Like so, kind of taking too concentrated of a bet in any loan, we don't look as good. But if you're thinking about like, all right, let's let's simulate another. 2009, 2008, Armageddon scenario, we do that. And I want to caveat this, that we are not financial advisors. We're not supposed to give advice on on what people should invest in. But we do definitely say, like, hey, big picture diversification is, is better. But yeah, we run simulations across our portfolio. And when we talk about why we believe that this is, like, incredibly mispriced risk, you know, we should actually uh, – I'd be happy to actually share some of like, our portfolio analysis that, that we run, but, like, you know, if you are diversified across our portfolio and you assume like a massive foreclosure rate, like 20%. So if you look at like the Census Bureau says that foreclosures topped out at like 4.6% during the crisis, but that's, that's totally wrong. I mean, there was so much shadow inventory that would have been foreclosed if the banks had to, 
had to kind of move things through the system. But really, we we think the real foreclosure rate was about, if you looked at it on a normalized basis, what about what it was about 17% during the financial crisis. Like that was like the worst kind of case scenario. So if you take that kind of, you know, if we look at like a 20% foreclosure rate across our portfolio and assume every single property that forecloses retraces its worst price decline, um, you're still looking at a situation where principal loss is unlikely across this, uh, the portfolio on the current basis. So when I talk about like relative, when you think about relative risk as a portfolio manager, well, if we retrace 2008, even if we're looking at a 5, 10% loss on our, on a portfolio, you know, assuming somebody like really like top tick things and sold out of the bottom, if you assume that type of loss, well, you're still relatively a lot better than the S&P, almost any other asset class, right? Well, REITs, but, li- listed REITs went down something like 70%, I think, in the uh, oh, yeah. in 08. So that's... Exactly. That's a great that's a great point. So people always ask like, well, what's the, you know, well, why is this better than REITs? And it's like, well, REITs are completely correlated to the to the stock market. And not only that, they underperformed in the crisis. So, you know, look at in a crisis scenario, there could be duration risk, right? If we need to foreclose on a big portfolio, they have to do we have to do that on behalf of investors. Well, duration could get pushed out. But the reality is you know, if you're this, these simulations we run assume like top ticking the market and bottom ticking the market, right? Over like a certain time period, you know. And if you look at like the curve of how things went, well, you know, if you were either like investing through the cycle, you would have made out fine because you know things things come back over time. So I think if people diversify broadly and then kind of are reinvesting into this into this asset class. My personal belief, and this is an investment advice for people, but my personal belief is like you have a secured portfolio of assets at a 65%, 70% loan to value. If you're diversified broadly, and we and our originators did the right job of how we valued the property and underwrote it, um, I think you know the risk of large principal loss is very, very muted. I was just going to say, you, you had asked before about the what the experience is for investors. I just thought I'd uh, point out, and if you want to get back to this later, we can. But, you know, when you come to the platform, um, you sign up, you create an account, you fund your account, and then you can pick and choose the individual deals you want to get into. Typically, there'll be between three to 15 investments available at any given time, and we keep adding new ones uh, throughout the week. Um, and the idea is that We don't like to have a whole bunch up at once that uh, are open and open for a long time. What we like to do is kind of keep tripling them up, getting them invested in and closed so that people's money, you know, investor money isn't sitting in any particular deal for too long. Uh, But that's the idea is that uh, you can pick and choose the deals. You can go deep on any particular investment or you can use what we we call automated investing and uh, we'll help. uh, Well, basically, you set up your parameters for the types of investments you're looking for and how much you want to invest per deal that matches those parameters, and we will match you with those as they as they come up on the platform, put those investments to work for you. Uh, but with a caveat that you have 24 hours to back out of any uh, investment that we put you in. So it just makes it a lot easier for, uh, for people to do. Um, and then the idea is they can kind of keep rolling investments as they go. And the average, so let's say somebody's got 100 grand, they come to your site, do you have a recommended number of deals that they should participate in? Is Do you say, all right, you should put at a minimum 10% in your portfolio max in each deal, or is it 5% or depend, obviously it depends on the criteria, but, it, but for diversification, is there a recommended sort of percentage diversification you guys think is prudent? 
I mean, this this is this is an area where we kind of get into like uh, we're not supposed to give it investment advice. My personal opinion is ten loans is like a minimum, kind of where you start to feel like I think kind of like that's where if you just start looking kind of like you know running simulations is where that starts uh, creating some level of diversification. Twenty is better, hundreds is better. You know, I mean, more is better, obviously. In the minimum, um, is then, a some, thousand. Yeah, minimum minimum is a thousand bucks. So what we like. For instance, my brother, my mom, my grandpa, they all have money on our platform. And I tell them, I'm like, you should you should probably just invest in every a little piece of every single loan that comes up on the platform. To me, that's way better off. Now, people are natural where it's fun for them to look at deals and kind of like choose and pick. So what tends to happen is, you know, people will have this automated investing on, but then when they see deals that they really like, then they'll, they'll put more in. And we have people that will like a deal will come up and be like, oh, this is my... This is down the street from me. I know this well. This is a great deal. And then they might kind of make a larger investment there. But yeah, I mean, I think like when you get 10 plus, that starts starts getting good reverse vacation, in my opinion. But yeah, more is better. And then, but there, and then there's another kind of interesting aspect of the way the platform is structured is that, you know, historically going to invest in these loans, you have to make a bet. You get your interest payments. And at the end of the loan, you get this a bulk payment, time. then you have to go find another deal if you wanted to go do a deal, which was time-consuming and they might not be available. But because we have deals coming up all the time, there's this interesting ability for investors to reinvest interest payments into new loans to create a compounding effect and also kind of risk mitigation on that front. And just the idea of like being able to like, you know, let's say you're like, hey, I've got my 100 grand and I want to put this across 50 loans. I'm going to put two grand in each loan. Well, it's going to take a little bit of time to build up that portfolio um, to do that. But... While you're doing that, you're also laddering, right? So in like these interest, this like, you know, potentially rising rate environment, potentially like smoothing out kind of valuation cycles, or if there is a, a downturn in the real estate market, well, if you're kind of consistently investing over, you're almost creating this incredibly short-term bond ladder um, that is very, very unique that's never really, you know, existed before. So, uh, you know, there's just a lot of things that we're really, we get excited about. Like I could talk for hours, so I'll, I'll stop. Yeah, and I would add that, not, and not only are you in, diversifying across loans. And I think this is particularly interesting and important uh, uh, thing that we've, we're bringing to market here. We've, I mean, in my view, we've taken this great asset class and almost reinvented a new asset class on top of it. But uh, you're getting diversification across loans, but you're also getting across uh, uh, lenders, which is important, as well as uh, geographic diversification. So, you know, maybe there's like some sort of situation that only affects kind of the West Coast or certain areas of the country more than others. Being diversified, not concentrated in a single area, it's it's important. And for exa- another example, we have a lot of investors out of the Bay Area who, you know, they're like, hey, I want to invest anywhere but the Bay Area because they already have their home there, and they're like, I want to I want to really diversify in real estate, and I love it, but I I need to be diversified outside of this area, right? So it just gives you this incredible ability to kind of like spread out risk across the table in a way you've really never been able to before. And so I assume, what's the breakdown for your investors? Is it mostly individuals? Is there a mix of institutions? Can investment advisors allocate for their clients? What's the, what's the breakdown? Yes. Well, all of those are investors on the platform, or that's the platform. The vast, to date, the vast majority has been direct, what we call retail investors, so people that like you that come on the platform, sign up and create an account. So, you know, buy these fractional interests. So, I mean, we have wealthy individuals, family offices. We have wealth managers that allocate their clients' capital onto the platform. And then we have a whole institutional program 
that is slightly different than the fractional platform. A lot of institutions want to buy whole loans, so we have a whole loan program for institutions. So it's both. And, you know, the idea here is, you know, the name Peer Street, you were talking about the double meaning with us being on, on the actual Peer Street in Manhattan Beach. You know, our idea for this business, the name Peer Street was always about, you know, leveling the playing field, basically like allowing any investor to access the same type of assets that, you know, Goldman Sachs or a large financial institution would be able to, to access, kind of leveling that playing field between Main Street and Wall Street, right? Uh, and by the way, the further we've gone on this, the more we've realized that a lot of institutions, uh, while they could access this asset class in a certain way, haven't been able to access it in a very good way before. And so a lot of them are very, very interested in what we're what we're doing. So Yeah, so I mean, a lot of our growth going forward is with institutions that are coming on to buy. And, you know, the institutions buy differently. They'll say, hey, I'd like to buy $100 million over the next 12 months or $200 million over the next 12 months. And so that's typically what our, what our, and they basically say, hey, I'll buy a box, like whatever loans come through, I will buy. We allocate loans. We allocate loans to the retail platform. We allocate loans to institutions. And so everybody's getting access to the same loans. Um, but it's one of these things like, you know, we want to kind of, uh, I have a little bit of a populist bent on this stuff, but the, uh, the idea is like we want to give everybody as much direct access as possible. They want it. Um, but having more institution and more capital coming on the platform is important because it means that we can scale more and scales are very important in this business because scale means more diversification for all investors. It also allows us to collect more data so we can refine the credit model and the analytics. Um, so it's just, you know, it's, you know, this sounds so Pollyanna-ish, I guess, but I mean, when you think about creating a centralized hub, that more just it's this classic kind of business where more participation by investors means more loans, which means more diversification and better credit analysis for those investors. It means more data that we can share with investors. It's really this thing that like more is better, more is better for people. And what what's the capacity kind of log jam for the biggest challenge for you guys? Is it new investors coming to the platform and finding out about it? Or is it actually sourcing the deals and expanding, you know, across more states or different geographies? What's kind of the the main growth initiatives or challenges going forward? I mean, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's early stage. So it's like any, Brett loves to do this little scale thing with his hands where he talks about a marketplace. Because this is a true marketplace. You know, it's like we're always balancing supply and demand. And so, I mean, so... Long, I mean, there are periods where we might have more supply up and there's like a temporary, like a, a one or two week period where we actually need more short on, on, on investment demand because the supply has gotten bigger. But for the most part, it seems like the biggest demand for investment demand is going to out, is going to continually outpace supply because it's such a good asset. So, you know, going forward, I don't think it's, it's the idea of like onboarding you know, I think it's more for us, it's like almost like we can scale almost as fast as we need to over the next 12, 24 months. It's more an operational thing. It's like, and for us, it's like, you want to be able to scale while maintaining quality, right? You don't want to adjust your underwriting. You don't want to, you don't want to be pressured to reduce your underwriting standards or cut corners. You want to make sure that the process is, is pristine and that the underwriting is correct. So for us, it's more about, I think that, I think the, it's really about like, Hey, how do we scale as much as possible while maintaining that high degree of quality? And that's going to be the trick. But you know, I think I think over the short term right now, we're probably like 
I think like last week was one of our, we had 15 loans up and the previous two months, loans would go up and they'd fill within hours. And then we had 15 loans up that took like over a week to fill. So it was like this weird, like little lull for a minute. Now that's flipped back the other way. So yeah, capital capital like flowing back on the platform. So there's a little bit of a balancing act, but I think, I think if we're reading the tea leaves correctly, investment demand is going to outpace supply for the kind of foreseeable future. We've seen that a lot with our site as well. We've had a ton of investors that said over the last few months, they said, Meb, you know, I'm just going to wait to after the election to invest when things are more certain, <laughs> to which our response was after the election, of course, <laughs> do things feel more certain now? And there's always geopolitical events and everything else going on. Um, so you guys just had some big news. You raised your Series A, 15 million bucks from top VC Andreessen Horowitz. Um, one, maybe any comments on that? And two, what's the what's the expansion plans? What are you going to spend all that dough on? Is it global sort of aspirations as far as asset, you know, loans in other countries? Is it different offerings? What's the, what's the five, 10 year plan? Yeah, thank, thank you, by the way, that was, a, it was a huge thing. We're super excited about having Andrews and Harwood's involved. So yeah, we are super excited about that. And to your point previously, the brew was answering really, you know, it's about scaling the business and this investment is going to help us to continue to scale the business. Like our biggest bottleneck is ourselves being in the, acting as a gatekeeper for investors and making sure that the investments are high quality. And we do a lot of stuff to make sure that operational efficiency continues to be built upon and get uh, get better and better. But we have to keep hiring analysts, et cetera, to go through loans and and, and do all that. So really we're the, we're the bottleneck, but that's a necessary bottleneck because, you know, that's our job for investors. We couldn't be more excited about the investment from Andreessen um, and uh, the people that, uh, we're working with there are fantastic. Alex Rempel, Angela Strange. Alex has this incredible background in, you know, real estate businesses and uh, technology. Point a firm. He's just he he really he really understands this space incredibly well. Angela, this is Brett, by the way. I worked with Angela at Google on a couple of different projects, so I know her very well. She's incredibly bright. And then Brew and I both have a just incredible respect for. The firm and Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz in particular, I mean, they're, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen, you know, invented the browser, which is just, you know, an incredible thing to say. And Ben Horowitz obviously has incredible operating experience. And in fact, I worked with them uh, in my previous company, Urchin, when they were doing Loud Cloud and uh, Opsware. Uh, so it's, it's, this is like for us, it's, uh, you know, basically kind of a dream investment. So yeah. we're super excited about it. Yeah, we're very excited. So after once uh, once all the gold change and, and jet gold chains and jet skis we ordered come in, then we'll start <laughs> uh, working on building the business. No, I'm kidding. You stay in the same office space. You do kind of have some. What's the what's the right word to describe this value <laughs> conscious office space currently? <laughs> yeah, I mean the uh, we. So for people that are listening, uh, our office location. Why tell people? We're right in downtown Manhattan Beach, which is a great area, to, a great area to be. So our office location is about a tw- is a twelve on a scale of one to ten. The office quality is about a two. Um, but we love, I mean, Brett and I, Brett and I are biased. We love to stay here because we walk to work and ride our bikes. But well, uh, do you, you guys, know, do you guys appreciate the, 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 the huge irony? So listeners, I have a pretty, we have a pretty normal office space here. 
in El Segundo, but this beautiful office space opened up right across the street from these guys with a huge deck, overlooks the pier, most beautiful possible. I probably wouldn't get anything done, so it's probably a great thing we never got it, but triple the cost of what we pay now. So y'all know me, I'm a cheap bastard. I would never spring for that, but just kept putting in low ball <laughs> offers the same way as I do for almost anything on Craigslist that's in my garage currently. And one of my buddies who's a bond trader texted me the other day. I was in New York and he said, Meb, congrats. When's the move-in party? And I said, what do you mean? He sent me a photo of the office space. And so and it had been empty for a year. So not only did someone take my dream office, the name of the company is also Cambria, which is the most preposterous. Oh, yeah. they're, they're, and we're it's doing like a, this interview in their office, actually. They, they, were, they were our... They were in the other tenant in our space, and then they moved to the space that you wanted there. By the way, I'm well aware. I'm still just as furious. Yeah. So the um, it's like a it's like a glass top or a quartz top counter company, and so I, I said the only silver lining is that when they move out, we won't have to change the signage. So when when the prices come down eventually, <laughs> I don't know when. Hopefully, you guys aren't doing a loan on that building because I imagine it's expensive. But when they come down, when we move in, we can we can keep the same signage. I don't know. In the meantime, we're still we're we're still in our we have quite a sterile, uh, low cost office as well. So I can I can sympathize in many ways. When you do the hostel takeover, uh, maybe we can sublet some space from you because that is some fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's probably the nicest office in LA. So, it's, so it's, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not thanks, cheap. Thanks for depressing but, me for the rest of the day. I'm gonna I'm gonna go over to Simsy's and have a beer and and probably you know go throw eggs on the door. <laughs> by, by the way, by the way, there's blind pig on tap at Simsy's. I I was just told by somebody. So you know, if you head over there, there's some good beer for you. It's a good IPA. So I'm going to ask a couple more quick questions, and then we'll move on to kind of the, the close closer to the end. But uh, one business model: How do you guys make money? Is it a is it fee origination? What's the what's the what's the business model here? Yeah, so I mean, we take some fees on both sides of the marketplace. Um, we participate in fees that are charged to the borrower. That's a minor piece of it, but like stuff like extension fees and things like that that are charged to the borrower. We 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 share with the originator. Of a loan, and then uh, we charge investors a one percent servicing fee, servicing spread to service a loan. So you know what that means is if if a loan is coming in, you know if a borrower is paying ten percent on a loan, the end investor gets it at nine percent, and Pier Street takes one percent off of those interest payments. And for that, you know we did the aggregate, we did the aggregation, the underwriting, we service the loan for the, the asset manager. If a loan goes bad, we'll foreclose on behalf of investors. So the whole goal for the end investors basically get them, get them all the benefits of being a lender without doing any of the work. And and what's the, what's that like? So hypothetically, let's say you're an investor, you got 20 loans out, and let's say one does go south. Is that a huge pain in the butt, or what, what's the process? Is y'all y'all take care of it, or how's that work? Yeah, I mean we we manage that whole process. We actually uh, we've done about 400 loans. We've had. We just did our first foreclosure on a loan. Um, you know, and you know that's a normal course of things. I mean, even in great markets, loans go bad. Uh, but yeah, we handle that all. And so I think that's one thing that's important. The team we've been able to build internally is great. I mean, our head of asset management, you know, Martina is just a spectacular guy. He worked out a billion dollars of you know of the IndyMac portfolio at One West Bank previously, and you know, so we got a lot of this workout experience internally. 
Yeah, I mean, so it's a pain for us. It's not, it's not, it's not an easy process. There's a lot of legal involved. There's a lot of process involved. But uh, that's something that is like, you know, in terms of like a pain point for investors, you know, historically getting these loans, you'd have to handle that stuff yourself. And it's just most people are just unequipped to do it. So the idea is like we can do that more efficiently. We can do that better. Um, so when that comes up, we foreclose. We distribute the proceeds to investors. And ideally, everybody gets all their money back plus interest that they are owed. And so that's what's happened today. I know you guys can't talk specifically to it, but but from a research perspective, if you're an investor listening to this, where do you see this chunk really fitting into their asset allocation? Is it a substitute for read exposure? Do you think it's a treasury alternative? Do you think it's a broad mortgage back? alternative or do you think it's a total satellite that doesn't really plug into any of those allocations but is rather a totally different asset class how do you think about it just kind of broadly speaking that's a great question i mean it's obviously for, for every investor is a little different i mean for me personally i mean i look at it as like a cash and treasury type alternative like that kind of like that to me that's what it looks like and if not like that then like a fixed income alternative is the way I personally look at it. I mean, you know. What, what do you think, Matt? I'm curious on your your opinion. Yeah. Um, so obviously, I think a lot about these things to the extent that it. I, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a fixed income substitute, and frankly, for a lot of the volatile listed fixed income substitutes, so a lot of the ones that people historically get exposure to that don't really diversify our portfolio, I think this has probably in my mind a, a, a decent home for that. But yeah, I mean, it, it, most people, what they miss about a lot of these publicly listed asset classes, they are very, very, very volatile REITs in particular um, that saw major losses in, in 08. So yeah, I, I would see it as sort of as a fixed income substitute. And in a world of, look, we our last white paper was on this topic, in a world of uh, not just low yielding treasuries, but the rest of the world, sovereigns yielding I think GDP weighted is about 50 basis points and two or three of them are negative. You know, uh, something that potentially yields seven to nine is is more attractive. Like I mentioned before we started the podcast, listeners, I actually signed up for an account today. So soon I may be a client as well eventually. Yeah, pile in. Back, back the truck up. You can't, you can't do it. You can't do a white paper on Pierce Street unless you have a lot of exposure, you know? I, I, <laughs> really, will, really I will fund number. my entire account with one $1,000 loan just so you guys can buy a happy hour. All right. Well, look, we, uh, I'm sure this could go on for two hours. This has actually been a really interesting deep dive. I'm sure readers will fire in a bunch of questions. So we may actually have to do a, a follow-up show at some point. I like to ask everyone at the end, recurring feature, something that they may know that's useful, beautiful, or, or magical. Uh, do you guys have any, any ideas for us? Oh, well, as you could tell by this podcast, we've got plenty of ideas. We could talk talk for hours. Yeah, I got a couple. I mean, I got a couple off the top of my head, like useful. I mean, my favorite app of all time by far is Hotel Tonight. Um, I don't know if anybody uses Hotel Tonight. If you have used it, but like, I'm a huge promoter. Uh, Sam Shank, founder, is a friend of ours. But uh, I mean, last minute hotel bookings. They curate hotels for you. I mean, I, when I travel, I don't even book hotels in advance. I just, when I land on the airport in New York or San Fran, I pull out the app and I see what's available and I book hotels. And it's like, uh, just, I don't know if you've used it, but to me, like, it's the, it's, 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 the it's, arguably, yeah, we, we it's definitely my top five. Ever. I love it. Yeah. We've never been skunked. Yeah. 
what's uh, what's your useful? My my beautiful useful thing is Brett, um, and I don't know if this counts, but uh, for me, one of my uh, and Brew probably say the same thing. Uh, both of us have had this really interesting life experience. Uh, this thing, this beautiful, beautiful, wonderful thing called Semester at Sea in our lives, and uh, it's not an app, it's not a shiny thing that you can just go grab, it's an experience you can have, and you can only have it one time in your life, and that's when you're a college student, and you can only go on it once, although Bruce somehow snuck in and did it twice, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is uh, that for me has been like probably one of the most impactful things uh, that changed the trajectory of my life and the way I per uh, perceived the world and my place in it. And, and Brew and I both went on semesters here. We went on different semesters. But basically what it is is uh, you are on a uh, large ship. It's a floating campus. You're on it with four or 500 other students. And you literally travel around the world. You take your courses while you're at sea. And you visit all these countries. You know, my trip we went on 14 different countries. It sounds like a wonderful, long, giant spring break. Uh, yeah, it is, it is sort of like that. But it's like this, they call it a voyage of discovery which it is because you not only do you learn so much about the world and everything, you know, all these places, you also get to reflect on your own, your, your place in the world. And then um, for it's great entrepreneurial training because you're basically placed in these situations. Every time you pull into a country, you don't hold the currency, you don't know the language uh, you, and you've never been there before and you're trying to go figure something out. And it's like rinse and repeat, do it over and over and over again, and you get pretty darn good at it, and, you're, and it builds your confidence to be able to handle just about any situation that life throws at you. You know, this includes, like, people get robbed, and, you know, there's a normal course of life happens when you're in these places, but... Uh, that, that, that's probably my biggest regret as an undergrad was not studying abroad, and, and my thinking, idiotic thinking at the time, I was an engineer, I was like, wow, it's going to be too hard to go study you know, differential equations in Spain or something, and I don't speak the language. So I said, well, the, the next best thing for me would just be to go take summer school in Boulder, which some people, depending, would say that might might be like a different country. But um, love, love <laughs> that as well. Uh, my quick one is, a lot of people don't know this, but if you're a skier, some of the best skiing in the world is in Japan. And so in addition to the wonderful, they get some of the best and most and driest snow in the world, and some of the best um, cultural experience as well. So we got we got three travel focused ideas in one of the best domains and and uh, curated writing about skiing in Japan is called a website called Powder Hounds, and it's written by oh, yeah. uh, a, a guy that basically skis 300 days a year and, and it lives the good life. So check it out. It's a wonderful experience. Um, crew, this was a lot of fun. We're, we're, we're over the hour mark, so we're going to wind it down. But so where do people find more information? What, what's uh, If they want to find more information on your company as well as research and writing and Twitter, where do they go? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean purestreet.com obviously is the easiest place to go. Uh, we're always tweeting out interesting stuff on our on our. Uh, our Twitter account. There are some bloggers that have kind of picked up and written some interesting articles about us. Mr. Money Mustache is uh, is actually that's another very useful guy that uh, uh you know it's a blog about kind of uh, this hardcore savings and investing. I don't know if you know it. It's a fantastic. Yep. Uh, I, through him covering us, I've become like a total like fan of his. That's another useful thing for a lot of people. And I, it's really kind of like almost like a spiritual way to kind of look at like your consumption and what you spend money on. And it's really 
Pete, the guy who runs it, I think is like a really, really inspiring guy. So it's another useful thing to add in, in on there. Um, there's been a lot of, they've had a lot of conversation on there in the Q&A, the forums and stuff. He's written a couple articles. There's a place. Uh, really come to the website and have questions people can email in through our kind of uh, app. We can ask. We've got a good FAQ section that has a lot of information. But um, If you find yourself in Manhattan Beach, go knock on their door on the pier across from the kettle. Yeah, we, we love this. Great French onion soup. Um, look, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for taking the time out, listeners, today. We always welcome feedback and questions to the mailbag at feedback at com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Um, Brett and Brew, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Mm-hmm.